Okay, well today we're going to talk about time-resolved spectroscopy, or really we're going to talk about some of the tools necessary for doing time-resolved spectroscopy. We're not really going to talk about the applications as much today. So we'll talk about different methods for generating short laser pulses. If you want to resolve the temporal behavior of some system, you need to interrogate it with light that's shorter, that has pulses that are shorter than the, the process that's going on. Okay, so you might have some chemical reaction. You want to monitor the reactants during the reaction. You need to uh, have some interrogation that's, that's faster than the reaction. And so we'll talk about how you generate short laser pulses, what the limits are to how short a laser pulse you can generate are, um, how you determine how short a laser pulse is. Because once it becomes shorter than the uh, time constant of your photodetectors, it's no longer trivial to characterize its length. And then some of the techniques of doing measurements with short laser pulses. Um, we'll talk about lifetime measurements and pump probe measurements. I think we'll have time to get to that, to that today. We'll talk about some of the extra care you need to take when you have ultra-fast optics, very short laser pulses. We'll talk about short pulses. The energy in the pulse generally leads to a very high peak power, and that affects how you handle the light. It can damage optics more easily. It's harder to transmit through optics, both because of the high peak power and the broad spread and fr uh, frequency components that make up the pulse. Okay, so for a lot of things we've talked about up until now, where we're trying to resolve the energy spectrum of a sample, it's desirable to have very narrow frequency bandwidth lasers. So very narrow line width so that you can tune the laser line through frequencies and with very high resolution determine where these energy levels are. And it's one of the reasons that lasers have improved the field of spectroscopy greatly. But today we're talking about exactly the opposite. We're talking about the case where the frequency spectrum of the lasers are wide due to the fact that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says you have a short pulse, you have a large frequency spectrum. So we're going to go to the other extreme today where we have a wide frequency spectrum so we're not going to be describing experiments that are good for differentiating different energy levels like we have. Um, but instead, they'll be useful for determining how systems change as a function of time. So if there are energy levels that are here at one point in time and gone at another point in time, um, without necessarily saying exactly where those energy levels are, we might be able to say how long they're there. The reason they might only be there for a short period of time is because they could be a, a transient compound in a, in a reaction or could be from some bulk physical motion of a material. Um, and for that, we're going to want narrow pulses. Okay, so how do you make short pulses, short or narrow pulses? There's a lot of different ways, and depending on how short a pulse you need, there are different, different options. Um, so for a laser, a laser is a system that takes energy from a pump, stores it in the material, and then emits it in the laser oscillation. So one thing you can do, sort of the very first thing you might think to do, is pulse the pump. If you pump your material, for example, with a flash bulb, it's called flash lamp pumping, where you just 
send a, a flash of light into your material, pump it up to an excited state, it's only going to stay in that excited state and you're only going to have uh, perhaps an inversion for the lifetime of the upper state. And after that, the inversion's gone and it won't laze. Okay, so you can get pulsed laser output if you have pulsed pump input. Okay, so pulsed pumps can give you a laser uh, pulse length on the order of microseconds. And that basically corresponds to the upper state lifetime of the, uh, of the material that you're pumping. Then if we want to go to shorter and shorter pulse lengths, we can use what's called inversion oscillations. I'll describe that in a moment. Q switching is a very common technique to do two things. One is produce short pulses, and generally that's done to produce high power, high peak power in the pulses. So we'll describe that as a method to generate nanosecond pulses. Q-switching has an ugly sister called cavity dumping, which isn't nearly as frequently used, um, but it is a similar technique that gives nanosecond pulses. And then for very short pulses, femtosecond, or really just a few wavelength, uh, wave trains that are just a few wavelengths long, we generally use what's called mode locking. There's different ways to generate mode locked lasers. We'll describe some of those. And there's some techniques you can do with mode locked pulses such as uh, stretching, amplification, and compression of the pulses. So we'll describe that process as well. So just for your reference, one visible wavelength, say 550 nanometers, is about two femtoseconds. So when we start talking about pulses that are femtoseconds long, we're talking about just a few wavelengths long, or a few optical cycles long. Um, anything shorter than that, isn't really an optical pulse anymore. Or you might, you might think about what it means to have a pulse length that's shorter than a wavelength. But um, I'd say that's a different regime. So there are sort of hero experiments that have gotten pulses that are shorter than a wavelength, but we won't really characterize those as optical pulses, so we won't consider those. Okay, so let's start with sort of the easiest and the slowest of these technologies, and we'll work our way towards mode locking. Okay, so pump lasers, you pulse the pump. Here's a plot that shows a time-varying pump. And so here's a pulse. Let's say there's a threshold where the gain equals the losses. When you have enough inversion in the laser that the round-trip gain equals round-trip losses, you can have self-supporting oscillations. Okay, so as we pump, there's a population inversion that follows that pump. And then once that population inversion is large enough that there's more round-trip gain than there is round-trip loss, then any of the spontaneous emission coming from this upper state decay into the lower state will rattle around between the laser mirrors, get amplified, and it will continue to get amplified, building up in power, until it saturates the population inversion down to the point where the round-trip gain equals the round-trip loss. If the population inversion is above that, the power will continue to build up, stealing, stealing energy from the upper state until the population is such that the round-trip gain exactly equals the round-trip loss. That's the steady state condition given by this dotted line. And that's where the laser will operate until the, basically until the pump is removed. 
So here's the laser output shown here. And you get a pulse that's on the order of the uh, pump pulse length. That's the case if we have a uh, fast lower laser level, which is generally what you want in a laser. So just think of that as our canonical laser system. If you have a slow lower laser level, what that means is that as the, um, as the laser turns on and pulls energy out of the upper state, it causes transitions into the lower state, and that lower state gets filled up and doesn't have time in this pulse to drain back down to the ground state. And as a result, the system gets saturated. So the gain gets reduced below threshold, and so you can get a much narrower laser output pulse. So here, the laser output pulse, its temporal length is basically limited by the temporal length of the pump. When the pump is on, there's a laser output pulse going. Here, what's happening is, as soon as the laser pulse turns on, it pulls all the energy out of the upper state, puts it in the lower state where it stays, and the inversion goes away. And so this pulse length is independent of the pump length. And that's called a self-terminating laser. It's a laser where the pulse, as soon as you pump it, you get a pulse coming out. And it doesn't matter when you turn off the pump, you just get a pulse. So those lasers that operate like that are called self-terminating lasers. The nitrogen laser is the most, most common example of, of a self-terminating laser. Um, a nitrogen laser is also the only laser that doesn't need a cavity around it. The gain in a nitrogen laser is high enough that for one pulse, photons can get amplified, and the pulse basically terminates before the light would have gone around in a cavity. The gain's bigger than the loss. Loss is bigger than the gain. So delta N here is a population inversion. And when that population inversion exceeds, so the gain is proportional to the population inversion. And so when it exceeds the loss level, so if, if the vertical axis were plotting gain, a gain is a fraction. And round trip gain would be a fraction. The round trip loss would be a fraction. So this dotted line would represent the round trip loss plotted on the same scale as the round trip gain, which is proportional to delta n. You could pump it with a CW laser and you'd see the same thing. Um, yeah. Okay, and that leads to what's called inversion oscillation. So let's say you pump it with the CW laser. Um, the system, as the uh, power, as the gain builds up, eventually the laser turns on and it overshoots the steady state, which is what we saw for the self-terminating laser. And so then it turns off. And then you pump it back up, and it turns on, it overshoots, turns off. And so you get this ringing behavior. So this is in time. So these are a bunch of pulses coming out. So it's a pulse laser, it's a repetitive laser, but 
these pulses aren't periodic. Okay, so they're, they're sort of random in time. Um, we'll see when we compare that to cue switching and mode locking, which have very specific criteria that sets the pulse repetition rate. This doesn't have that. So it's a way to get pulses, but not very well-defined pulses, and therefore it's, it's not a very uh, commonly used technique. So what is more common is Q-switching. How many people have heard of Q-switch? Q-switches, Q-switch lasers. Um, it's a technique that's commonly used to um, increase the peak power in what would otherwise be a CW laser. Um, so that's important. When is it important to have high peak power? What's that? I can't hear you. Mm, not of the laser's fundamental wavelength. But what can you do with a laser that depends on the intensity of the laser? So nonlinear optics. Nonlinear optics encompasses frequency conversion, second harmonic generation. Um, we talked about it in, in terms of a method to generate wavelengths that aren't directly producible by other lasers. You can convert laser of one frequency to another frequency. Um, the efficiency at which that occurs is proportional, or is not proportional to the intensity. It's nonlinear. Um, so higher intensities give you more, a more efficient conversion. And so a Q-switch laser is a method of taking a certain amount of energy that's in a laser and compressing it into a short pulse. That means a higher peak intensity. Same average intensity, but a higher peak intensity. That makes nonlinear conversion more efficient. Okay, so the idea is that you store all the pump energy in the laser for a long period of time, and then you release it in a single pulse. I say a single pulse, you could repeat the process, so it's a series of repetitive pulses. Um, but we can think about it in terms of a single pulse. And that's done through Q-switching. So the idea is that you take a cavity which would normally resonate. So you've got some material in here that has some gain. There's some round-trip losses, largely due to leaking out of the, uh, the output coupler. And you pump it to create an inversion. And so we saw before that you can plot the inversion is a function of the time over which you pump it. So let's say you pump it and you reach, um, you exceed the point where the gain equals the loss. So I'm plotting gain. This is a round trip loss. Once the inversion is such that the gain exceeds the loss, you'd expect there to be the laser to turn on. And if the lower state is a fast radiative transition, so it stays depopulated, you'd expect this to operate CW at the point where the gain equals the loss for as long as you're pumping it. 
Okay, now the problem with that is the loss of the cavity is just whatever it is. Um, so let's say it's 1%. However much pump you put in, you get 1% out. That's what that's saying. Uh, what would be nice is to take all that energy going into the, into the system and store it up and be able to extract it in a very short pulse to get high peak powers. And so the way to do that is you can block this. Imagine just putting a shutter there so that the loss goes from being some small you know, percentage level amount of loss to being basically 100% or much larger. So you turn up the loss. Right? Then what will happen is the gain will continue to build up. The laser won't turn on until the gain equals the loss. And it may eventually reach this point, or it may just not be possible. Maybe that when you pump it to a point where um, you pump it as hard as you can and the gain never exceeds the loss. The laser never turns on. So you've got this large population inversion now, and you quickly remove that shutter. All the energy stored in that upper state can get extracted on the first couple passes through the cavity. And that saturates the gain down, and it comes back to steady state. So what you get is a large peak. So let's see, if, if this was going to be the steady state level, this is zero, this is the intensity at steady state, what you get instead is nothing and a large peak like that. Okay, so that's technique that can give a typical pulse length of about 10, nan 10 nanoseconds. How far, how long is a 10 nanosecond pulse? So in 10 nanoseconds, how far does light go? Three meters, yeah. So rule of thumb, rule of thumb, light travels at a foot per nanosecond. Just for ballpark figure. So it goes about 10 feet, three meters. So this pulse length is, you know, physically it's on the it's on the scale of the optical experiment. It's a few passes through the through the cavity. And all this energy is extracted. And so a few nanoseconds, so let's say you have a one watt laser, or what would have been a one watt CW laser. And you extract all the energy that would have been in a one second pulse, or one second of operation, into a single 10 nanosecond pulse. Well, then you're going to have about a gigawatt, I guess 100 megawatts in that example of peak power in this pulse, such that it's the same energy as one second of CW operation. Okay, so you can repeat this. You know, if you repeated this every second, you'd get a peak pulse every second. 
And all the pump energy you put in for a full second would essentially get carried off in that single 10 nanosecond pulse. So there's a couple ways to do this. The way I described um, is most closely related to uh, active key switching. So there's active and passive key switching. Active key switching means you have some shutter in the cavity that you can turn on and off. So the most common forms of shutters are either electro-optic or acousto-optic shutters. So there's some crystal in here that can either rotate the polarization or deflect the angle of the beam going through it as a function of the applied voltage. So if you have a polarizer here such that when you rotate the polarization it dumps the light out of the cavity, that's a very high loss. Then if you turn off the polarization rotation so that it can transmit through that polarizer, then you've lowered the loss considerably. Or if you deflect the light using an acousto-optic modulator, if you deflect the light so that it no longer hits this mirror at the proper angle to be resonant in the cavity, that's also a high loss. Both of those are high-speed voltage-controlled shutters. So they can be turned on, turned on and off in the order of a, a nanosecond. So you can operate at gigahertz frequency or can turn on and off in the order of a nanosecond. That's right, yes. Yeah. You want to let the, let the energy stay in the upper state. So what about that energy that goes out of the cavity? Well, so it might look like there's a laser beam shooting out here. There's not. What happens is you have spontaneous emission occurring from the upper state. It goes in all directions. Some of it goes towards the mirror. Now, if the shutter is not in place, it'll hit this mirror and come back and can be trapped in a resonant mode of the cavity. If that's the case, every time it passes the gain medium, it will build up. It will stimulate emission, it will build up. Until you get resonant buildup, you have a coherent beam, and you have power leaking out in your laser beam. But here, all we have is the spontaneous emission that's normally going out in all directions. And some of it that was going to hit the mirror just gets deflected up a little bit. So you just see the spontaneous emission here. Now, you might ask, how long can you continue to pump and have the population build up? And it depends on your laser material. What would limit that? I mean, could we pump for an hour? Yeah. Yeah, the spontaneous decay rate of the upper level. There's no point in pumping to an upper level for any longer than the, the energy can stay there. Okay, so um, typically these systems will be pulsed. They'll be pulsed at a rep rate that's on the order of the decay decay rate of the, uh, of the system. So you might have from kilohertz to megahertz uh, repetition rate. You can operate them single shot. Um, I know a guy who lights his fireworks on July 4th this way. He, he lines up a, a little Heaney laser beam on a target where he puts his fireworks. And then takes this high-powered three-jewel three uh, Q-switched neodymium YAG laser. And he has an acousto-optic Q-switch. And he just presses the button that opens the switch once, fires a pulse, and ignites the, uh, ignites the uh, fireworks.
Okay, so here's a plot. This basically shows what I showed on the board. I'm not going to go over that again. So that's active cue switching. Um, there's another way to do cue switching, which is passive cue switching. Um, it's a little less expensive in terms of the materials that go into the, the system, and it's maybe a little easier, but it gives you a little bit less control as well. And the idea is that you put an element in here, which we call a saturable absorber. We call it SA in our diagram. And as the name implies, it's a material that absorbs, so it's opaque up to a point. It's saturable. So once there's enough light incident on this, it becomes transparent. So it's the equivalent of, let's see, it's a little bit like using a sponge to try to stop your kitchen sink. The sink's flowing, you can stick a sponge underneath it and it'll block the water from falling down until it's saturated. And once it's saturated, any water that flows in has to flow out. Okay, so um, energetically what this looks like is a system with some energy levels um, that correspond to whatever wavelength that's a saturable observer for corresponds to a transition to an upper state. And then if that upper state has a long lifetime, then you can build up a population, you can build up a significant population in the upper state. And once that upper state population equals the lower state population, then it's no longer going to absorb. It's no longer going to have any net absorption. And beyond that point, any additional photons that hit it see a transparent medium. So these are typically made out of organic dyes. Um, or chromium-doped YAG is a very common passive Q-switch for neodymium YAG lasers. And this should say long decay time from the upper state. That's an error. And so there's a couple ways to think about this. One is that um, here's a plot of the loss in the cavity. And this is dominated by the saturable absorber. And then the blue represents the gain that's building up as the power is pumped in. So the gain builds up until the gain exceeds the loss. Once it exceeds the loss, it's possible to have um, lasing. And so at some point, when it's exceeded the loss by enough, then some power starts to build up enough that it can saturate the absorber the absorption goes down, and then all that energy that's in the upper state gets dumped into that circulating laser pulse. And as soon as that happens, the absorber starts absorbing again. Okay, so it's passive. Um, so it's really, it's just, it's a piece of glass you put into your laser cavity and you turn it from a CW system into a Q-switch system. There's nothing that you need to hook up, nothing you need to trigger, no electronics involved and therefore no control over the rate at which it occurs. Or, uh, yeah, you can't do single pulse with this. It's always gonna be repetitive. So that's called Q-switching. It's a very common technique. Uh, 
both to shorten laser pulses and to, for the similar reason, to increase their peak, peak power. There's a related technology called cavity dumping. The principle is almost identical, just kind of the inverse. Um, but the results aren't usually as good. The idea is that um, you start with very high, let's see, very low losses in the cavity, meaning usually there's some loss in the cavity that comes from the output coupler. That's how the light gets out of the cavity, and it gives you a usable beam. So usually one of the end mirrors has uh, a percent or two of transmission. So if you don't do that, if you make both mirrors high reflective, imagine you could make them infinitely high reflective. Now you can't, there's limits to how high the reflectivity can be, practical limits, but if they, let's say they were infinitely highly reflective, you'd get lasing, only the laser light would have no way to escape the cavity. So it would just continue to build up. You just, all the pump energy you put in gets extracted in the laser pulse, but that, it's not a pulse, it's just it's the laser field going back and forth in the cavity. And it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And then if at some moment in time you can switch off, or, I mean, if you can imagine just removing one of the end mirrors, all that energy just would flow out. Right? The length of that pulse would be the round trip length of the cavity, the physical length. The time of the pulse would be the round trip time of the cavity. Okay, now you can't pull out a mirror in that, that, uh, that fast, but you could have another electro-optic shutter, for instance, that would deflect the light out of the cavity. And so your output coupler then, instead of just being a mirror, could be an electro-optic or an acousto-optic device. So here's an, a little hard to see, but this is a diagram from Demtroder that shows an argon laser. Here's the laser head. Um, so this is, this is not the output of the laser. This is just uh, the, the argon ions, the, the gas tube. There's a back mirror over here, which is high reflective. And then there's a, mirror, a steering mirror here and an end mirror here. They're both high reflective. And so in the absence of this output coupler here, the light will just bounce back and forth between these mirrors. You'll get a resonant enhancement of the spontaneous emission. That's your laser, but there's no way for the light to get out until you turn on this acousto-optic modulator. And that deflects light at a small angle, and anyhow, that small angle can be enough to separate the light so that it doesn't go back into the laser, but instead couples out. Okay, so again, the speed at which you can do this is governed by two things. It's the speed at which you can turn these switches on and off, and then the cavity length or the round trip cavity time. So you get the same typical pulse lengths, but you don't get the same high powers you can get with Q-switching. So typical peak power would be on the order of a kilowatt instead of a gigawatt. Not nearly as large. So why would that be? Let's think about the two. case of Q-switching, we make the losses really high, and then we turn them down really fast. In case of cavity dumping, we make the losses really low, and we turn them up really fast.
So any thoughts on why Q-switching would give higher power? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good, good answer. Um, you can store the energy in the material for a long period of time, whatever the upper state decay time is, um, without losing that energy. But once it's in the field and it's bouncing back and forth, you can never really get the losses to zero. There's always going to be some losses on reflection from each mirror, on traveling through any of these interfaces. So if you're storing the energy in light that's bouncing back and forth and in incurring these losses, you know, very rapidly because it's traveling at the speed of light and anyhow it may take only a nanosecond or two for it to go through a round trip. Uh, you can never really make the losses that small. You can never make them small enough to get a lot of energy stored in the field. Okay, but you can make the losses high enough so that no energy is stored in the field and it's all stored in the material. And you can do that with much less, with much less uh, loss of energy. So Q-switching is a little more efficient. And it stores the energy in a material that's, or in a way that it's just a better, a better way to store it. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about Q-switching. Um, for nonlinear optics, it's very common to use neodymium YAG lasers have a fundamental output of 1064 nanometers, <coughs> Q-switch them to get very high peak powers, and use those for frequency doubling and frequency conversion. You frequency double, you get 532 nanometers, which is green. I think you frequency triple, you get 337, and you quadruple, you get 256. Um, is that right, 256? No. What's that? 266? 266. So you'll see those wavelengths a lot in experiments. Like when we were looking at some of the experimental diagrams before uh, that were in the literature, um, I know, for example, the one that had the, um, the NH radicals that were being excited, they were being illuminated by the fourth harmonic of YAG. So you'll frequently see these um, harmonics come up in systems where you have Q-switched neodymium YAG lasers. Okay, so let's talk about mode locking. Um, and let me just mention, the neodymium YAG laser, one of its useful properties is that it can have a very narrow line width. The frequency is very well defined, which can be useful in spectroscopy if you're trying to interrogate different energy levels. Uh, it's not tunable, so it's not often used directly in spectroscopy. Um, if you contrast that to like a tie sapphire or a dye laser, which are tunable over a broad, free, broad range of the spectrum, um, they're sort of at two opposite extremes. One laser that's very stable in time has a very narrow frequency line width, one that's broadly tunable. Um, so you can Q-switch the stable neodymium YAG laser. If you have a, a laser that's tunable over a broad band, you generally use mode, ma uh, mode locking to generate short pulses. So let's consider a laser that has a gain bandwidth profile that's wide. It's wide relative to the line width 
of a single laser mode. Okay, so this, this line as I've drawn it looks like a delta function, but it's actually the uh, Lorentzian line profile for the cavity that holds the, la the lasing medium. Okay, and so the laser line width would be a Lorentzian low profile. And if it operates in what we call single mode operation, you just have a single frequency at which it oscillates. And this is what your output would look like. And as you, if you have a tunable laser, you have some element that lets you um, change which wavelength resonates in the cavity. And that would move this sort of delta-like function back and forth in frequency under this gain bandwidth profile. Okay, so at any frequency where there's gain, you can get laser oscillation. As you tune the angle of your grating or your prism or whatever your, uh, your wavelength selector is, you can change that frequency. So for a dye laser, this could, be, this could cover the entire visible spectrum, just about for a tie sapphire laser, this could go from red to, to near infrared. Um, and that's what the laser output would look like if you had a single mode operation. Um, but unless you put in some element that restricts other modes from oscillating, you can get multiple laser modes oscillating at the same time. You can get all sorts of different frequencies coming out of the laser at the same time. So these mode spacings are spaced by C over 2L, the free spectral range of the cavity. So for a laser cavity, let's say it's on the order of a meter, this frequency spacing is on the order of uh, 500 megahertz. So if, you're, if you have a dye laser, it's tunable over 10 to the 14 hertz, you could have you know, millions of modes oscillating simultaneously, at least in theory. Okay, so when that happens, when you have multiple frequencies that are oscillating simultaneously, we call that multi-mode operation. And typically that's something, at least in science experiments, you want to avoid. Because what happens is these modes all oscillate independently and so when they add up in time, since they're at different frequencies, you get a beating. And if you had just a single mode, you get a nice sinusoidal output in time. That's your electric field variation as a function of time. If these different frequencies are superimposed and they're beating against each other, and they have random phases relative to each other, you get sort of a noisy amplitude profile. You get noise, amplitude noise. And this is one of the sources of amplitude noise is the incoherent sum of multiple laser modes. Okay, so often, to avoid that, to have a very, uh, very constant intensity output, people will put things like etalons in the cavity that filter out just a single mode for oscillation. But if you have this multi-mode operation, you can actually use that to your benefit if you can arrange for these modes to oscillate not 
independently, but somehow in a way where they have a constant phase relationship relative to each other. If that's the case, they won't just beat randomly against each other, but they'll beat with a specific relationship that will produce amplitude variations, which can produce very narrow pulses. And that's what's called mode locking. So you have all these different modes that have phases or frequencies that are independent of each other. If we lock those phases together so that they add coherently and with the same phase relationship as a function of time, then we call them locked together and we say it's mode locked. So there's a couple ways to do that. One is actively, sounds a lot like Q-switching, and the other is passively. Okay, so let's look at active mode locking first. And the idea here is that we'll take our laser cavity, here's our lasing material, and we'll put in a phase modulator. So this represents a phase modulator, and what it does is it just adds a phase to the light that goes through it that's a proportional to the voltage applied to the phase modulator. So it's a voltage-controlled phase offset on the light that goes through the, through the device. That's typically an electro-optic crystal placed inside of a capacitor. Applying a voltage produces an electric field which changes the index of refraction that changes the phase of the light that goes through the, the device. So if we imagine our initial single frequency delta function-like mode that's oscillating this laser, let's assume that we have a single frequency oscillation initially. So if we consider that a delta function. Then when it passes through this phase modulator, the field, which looks like E naught sine omega naught t, gets some additional phase put on it. So this term right here is the additional phase put on by the, by the phase modulator. And if I just apply a constant voltage to that phase modulator, I just get a constant value here for the phase. If I apply a sinusoidally oscillating voltage, I get a sinusoidally oscillating phase shift. That's typically how these are used. Okay, so here's a sinusoidally oscillating phase shift. It oscillates with an angular frequency of omega sub m, m for modulation, and it has an amplitude of m called the modulation depth. Okay, so this is an amplitude times sine of a plus b. So we can write sine of a plus b using trig relations sine a sine b minus cosine a cosine b. And so omega naught t is a, m sine omega mt is b. That lets us write this expression like this. And now we have sinusoidal oscillating term and then this term here, which represents 
sort of the amplitude of this sinusoidal oscillation. And this, this amplitude term is the sine of a sine. So the sine of a sine can be related to a Bessel series. You can look that up in a mathematical uh, book of tables and formulas if you like. Um, and in the case, so here's the, here's the explicit mathematical relationship. In the case where x is small, then only the first couple terms in this Bessel series will contribute. Okay, and likewise, we have this term over here, which is the cosine terms. There's also a relationship for the cosines that give a Bessel series. And so the effect of that is to put what we call sidebands on the light. So let me turn the lights off so you can see this. <coughs> so this diagram shows amplitude and phase modulation and what we call the sideband picture. Um, so let's look over here at this, this picture first. Um, this axis right here represents my frequency axis. So when I showed a couple slides ago, it's a function of frequency that gained bandwidth curve of the laser. I said there was this delta function that represented a particular frequency that was oscillating. That's this blue delta function here. We call that a phaser. Its length represents the amplitude of the electric field, and its angle in the plane that's is transverse to this axis here represents its phase. So I've drawn it vertically up, so it has a particular phase. These smaller blue lines represent what we call the sidebands. And so at higher frequency, the fields change their phase more rapidly in time. Right? So sidebands at higher frequency have a phase that's changing more rapidly than this field here. And sidebands at lower frequency have a phase that's changing more slowly. So if I look in the, if I consider the phase of this, what I'll call the carrier light, this central phaser, if I consider that constant, then this is a phase that's increasing in time, this is a phase that's decreasing in time, which is why this is rotating counterclockwise, this is rotating clockwise. So viewed along the axis, these are three, three vectors and their angle with respect to the, say, the y-axis here would represent their phase. Phase of frequency components of light. There are three different frequency components here. And what we can see is that if we add up those three vectors at any point in time, forget about their position in this direction, just in the transverse plane, um, when these two sidebands are both pointing up, then both sidebands and the carrier are pointing in the same direction, and the three vectors add to produce the this point right here, which is the maximum value that this yellow arrow is tracing out. And then when these two sidebands are both pointing down, they're pointing in the opposite direction as the carrier. So they're subtracting from the carrier right, and giving me a total 
net electric field at that point in time, it's down here. And you can just watch, because of the way that they're rotating in opposite directions at the same rate, their transverse components always cancel. Their vertical components always add or subtract from the carrier. And so the sum, which is given by this yellow phaser, is changing in length, but always has the same phase. So we call that amplitude modulated light. So if you have an electric field whose amplitude is changing in time, but its phase is not, that's amplitude modulation. It can be described by a constant amplitude carrier and two constant amplitude sidebands that are at frequencies with a phase such that they're in phase with the carrier um, so that both sidebands are in phase with the carrier at the same time. That's a picture for amplitude modulation. And then over here is a picture for frequency modulation, or phase modulation, which is very similar. Again, here's my carrier, and here's my sidebands, but the phase of the sidebands is such that when the two sidebands are in phase, they're either pointing this way or this way. Right? They're not along the direction of the carrier. So when they're in phase, they're either changing the phase of the carrier, so it's pointing more out of the board or more into the board. And if you look at any point in time, the vertical components of the two sidebands cancel. The horizontal components add. So they can never change the vertical length of this carrier. They can never add to the carrier to produce a different vertical value. They can just shift its horizontal value. So as long as these sidebands have a small magnitude, um, what's effectively happening here is this yellow sum vector has the same length as this blue carrier, but its phase is modulating. Its phase is modulated, so that we call that phase modulation. So phase modulation or amplitude modulation can be thought of as a field that has an amplitude or a field that has a phase that's changing in time, or it can be thought of in terms of multiple frequency components with a particular phase relationship. And that all comes from the math. So it all comes from these Bessel functions being the magnitude of the sidebands. So this is the, if this represents the amplitude of the light that's at a frequency of sine omega naught t, when we multiply sine omega naught t times sine of n times, this would be omega mt, that's going to produce components at omega naught plus and minus omega m, and they're going to have an amplitude of Jmx, which is the amplitude of those sidebands. Okay, so getting back to mode locking, what that says is if you start out with single, a single frequency that's oscillating, and you have this phase modulator, what comes out? Okay, so this is a plot of the amplitude as a function of frequency going into the phase modulator, what comes out has these sidebands on it. So that's drawn here. And then as that light bounces off the mirror and goes through this modulator again, each one of these frequency components gets its own sidebands added to it. And so this picture becomes this picture, this picture becomes this, eventually you get a whole comb of sidebands, all these sidebands of sidebands. So you get a whole series 
of frequency components. And if you, the frequency separation of these is the modulation frequency. If you set that to equal 1 over the round trip time in the cavity, meaning C over 2L, the free spectral range of the cavity, then every one of these sidebands can be resonant at the same time. So they can all laze at the same time. And unlike just normal multimode operation, these sidebands all have a very specific phase relationship to each other. That phase relationship was, was set by this modulator. If this is a phase modulator, those sidebands are 90 degrees out of phase with respect to the carrier. If it's an amplitude modulator, they're in phase. We saw that from the pictures. So they have a very specific phase relationship. And if you ask what happens when you add a bunch of different sinusoidal fields at regular intervals in frequency that have a regular phase difference, well, it's just you get the Fourier transform. This is the time series. Uh, this is the frequency representation. If you take the Fourier transform of this, what you get is pulses. Okay? If you have an infinitely long series of repetitive peaks, what you get is pulses every um, 2L over C in time, meaning every round trip time. So here's what that series would look like if you have only five modes oscillating at the same time. Those five modes will add up in phase at one moment, and then they'll drift out of phase and they'll sort of cancel each other out. And after one full round trip of the cavity length, because they're all resonant, they're all going to return to the same phase after one round trip. And then they'll add up constructively again and produce another pulse, another peak. And the more modes you have, the narrower those peaks become. So here's 15 modes. See, the peaks are narrower. So that's one way to think of it. That's the frequency picture. You can think of it in the time domain as well. Um, in the time domain, you can think of your phase modulator as being sort of like, um, sort of like a switch. There's a certain round trip length of the cavity it's set by the separation of the mirrors. And light will be resonant when an integer number of half wavelengths fit between the mirrors. So if you have a phase modulator here and you change the phase of the light, or you change the effective length between the mirrors by introducing some delay here, then you can take light that would have been resonant and make it not resonant, and vice versa. So it's sort of like turning the resonant condition on and off. And you're turning it on and off at whatever the modulation frequency is. So we said we want that modulation frequency to equal the free spectral range, or to equal 1 over the round trip time. So you can think about what's happening as, let's say you've got a little bit of a spontaneous emission here, send some light into a resonant mode of the cavity. That's going to build up to be a laser pulse. And let's say it goes around and it's resonant. It's resonant because at the time it encountered this phase modulator, the phase added to it by this modulator was exactly what it needed to be so that after a round trip, it had traveled an integer number of wavelengths. Okay, so it's not going to happen for all pulses at any given time, but some of them will experience that condition. And those will pass again. And when they hit this phase modulator the second time, they're going to see exactly the same phase 
because this modulator is going to repeat its modulation pattern the same, length, same amount of time it takes the light to go around the cavity. So it sees the same condition here, and so it can go around and resonate again. And every time it's going to gain energy. But the light that was emitted a little earlier or a little later, see a different phase here, that light's not resonant in the cavity and it doesn't build up. So you can think of, imagine like a toothed wheel here almost. Whenever the light is able to pass through one of the teeth, it's like turning the cavity on, and when it's blocked by one of the teeth, it turns the cavity off. It's almost like that. You get these little pulses that can build up when the cavity's open, or when the cavity's resonant, because of the conditions set by this phase modulator. And so that gives, I think, an intuitive explanation of why the frequency modulation of this modulator has to match the round trip travel time inside the cavity. Yep. So the repetition rate is set by the round trip cavity time. So that's active mode locking. So we have to modulate this. We have to adjust the frequency until the frequency matches that of the round trip travel time. And once we do, we'd expect to see uh, mode locked pulses coming out. We can also do it passively using a saturable absorber, just like in Q switching. A um, couple ways to think about this. We can think about having a multi-mode laser where the different modes are adding up incoherently and they give a noisy output. So at certain times the output's large, other times it's small. The times where it's large, let me put in my saturable absorber. If I have some noisy field inside the cavity, the peaks see less absorption than the areas that don't have peaks. Yeah, so the peaks see less absorption because of the nature of the saturable absorber. And so they will tend to build up and see gain, whereas the other parts of the pulse will see loss until these peaks build up enough that eventually what you have is a single pulse bouncing back and forth. You can think about it just in terms of what's energetically favorable. If all the energy is in a single pulse, that's the easiest way to get the energy once around the cavity, right? Because that's when the saturable absorber absorbs the least, right? If you spread the energy out over a small, well, it's like this. Back before people built walls to keep out illegal immigrants, they had checkpoints and they would you know, look for people crossing the checkpoints and check their identification. And one of the techniques that, that immigrants would use to get past this is they just get five or 600 of them together, and they'd all go through the checkpoint at once, and there'd be one or two guards there. They couldn't contain everybody. So it's exactly like passing through a saturable absorber. If you put all your eggs into one basket, send them through, a few eggs get broken, the rest get through. I'm mixing lots of metaphors here, I know. Uh, <laughs> But if, you know, if, if every day a couple people try to go through the checkpoint, they're all going to get caught. Same thing here. If you try to spread the energy out into a CW wave, it's all going to be absorbed. Putting it in a strong pulse gets it through. So that's just another way of thinking about it. Um, well, so here, 
the leading edge of the pulse saturates the absorber, and then the trailing edge can propagate through without absorption. And so that pulse goes through, and it comes back, and the same thing happens every time it hits. And so the, you have one pulse rattling around. Therefore, every time this pulse gets to the mirror, a little bit leaks out. And so you're going to see an output at the round-trip travel time of the pulse. So again, that's, um, we have a saturable absorber. The mechanism is the same as in Q-switching. But unlike Q-switching, the, there's going to be a fixed repetition rate for the light coming out. And that's going to be the same whether we're using passive or active mode locking. It's always going to be the round trip time for the, for the cavity. Um, the power, the peak power here can be very, very large. But that's not, well, that's, there's two types of power that we have to talk about when we're dealing with short pulses. There's the peak power, which is you know, the power seen while this pulse is on your detector or on your optic. And there's the average power. Right, so if you only have one short pulse every round trip tra transit time, the pulses are short. Most of the time, there's no energy coming out of the laser. So if you average over long periods of time, for example, if you ask, um, the average power is important when you consider like, how much heat you're adding to a material. Because right? the thermal time constant is going to average over many pulses. The peak power is important in terms of the nonlinear efficiency, the frequency conversion, in terms of ionizing a material. It's the, it's the strength of the electric field that distorts the molecules <coughs> or the atoms and can cause ionization. So depending on what you're doing, it may be the peak power or it may be the average power that matters. And so none of these systems, Q-switching or mode locking, are you necessarily doing anything exotic with the average power? But it's compressing the energy into short pulses and getting high peak powers. Yeah. Yeah, well, so Q switching, you can send out pulses um, slowly if you want. You can just send out single pulses. You can just turn on the Q-switch once to get one pulse out. So you can get power building up for the f however long your upper state lifetime is. You can get power building up. Here, you can only get power building up for one round trip. So we'll talk um, about one more method of mode locking. And then uh, I think I'll look forward to what we're going to do next time uh, in the time that we have. So another method is called care lens mode locking. This is another type of passive mode locking. I just mention it because it's the saturable absorber we've already seen. We saw in terms of the Q-switch. We haven't seen this yet. A care lens is just a piece of glass or a piece of a crystal that has a particular nonlinearity called uh, care, care nonlinearity. It's a third order nonlinearity. All that means is its index of refraction is a function of the applied, uh, the applied electric field squared. Okay, the applied electric field squared is the intensity of the incident beam. What that means is if you send in a Gaussian laser beam such that the power is larger in the center than it is on the wings, then the index of refraction of this material is different in the center than it is on the wings. It responds, or it's, it's 
its index of refraction is changed by the presence of this pulse. And then that, that changed index of refraction, it produces what's basically a lens here, a gradient index lens that can focus that light down. So a CW beam that has low intensity in this Gaussian beam might propagate through this without any significant lensing. So there's not enough intensity to turn on this care nonlinearity. But a high peak power beam can produce a significant care lens that focuses the light to a smaller size. And so if you put an aperture here, which would block the unfocused beam, but would allow the focused beam to go through. Okay, of course, it's not going to block all of the unfocused beam, but it would add significant amount of loss just due to the fraction of it, which it does block. Um, the loss will be much smaller for the pulsed beam. And so it's just like a saturable absorber in the sense that, um, that any fluctuations in the laser amplitude, any peaks in those fluctuations can propagate with less loss than the average, uh, than the average uh, photon would see. So as a result, this system would energetically favor light traveling in narrow pulses. So you'd get uh, mode, mode locking in this, this manner. Okay, so we've talked about several different ways to generate short pulses. Uh, what we haven't talked about, and we'll do next time, is we'll talk about how to deal with ultra-short pulses. One of the things that happens, particularly in mode locking, we've talked about all the different frequency components that add up to produce this pulse. What that means is your pulse has lots of different frequency components in it. And when it travels through glass or air or any material that has dispersion, those different frequencies travel at different speeds, and your narrow pulse gets spread out. The different frequencies travel at different speeds. You get what's called the chirped pulse, which looks like this. So it's great. You can generate a short pulse. You can't necessarily keep it short when it goes through material. So operating with these requires special techniques to avoid this problem with dispersion. There's also problems with damage. So you have to use special optics. This is an example of a particular optic labeled a high-energy contacted polarizer. This is just a polarizer that's designed not to be damaged by high power. A typical polarizer might be two prisms that are glued together. And it turns out that glue is the thing that gets damaged when there's high power. So this is a polarizer that has an airspace between the prisms or an optical contact that avoids the glue. So you have to buy special optics. You have to use conventional optics in unconventional ways, like plano convex lenses have to be used backwards. We'll talk about what that means next time to avoid getting, uh, getting for now reflections, you can't see that at all, that focus down to a spot and produce arcs in the air. You have to use techniques like pulse compression and uh, pulse stretching amplification and compression, special cameras, and uh, techniques like autocorrelations auto to measure pulse lengths. So that's what we'll do next time. Um, so we have, I guess, one more lecture on time-resolved spectroscopy, and then the following week we will do um, some different applications. We'll talk about um, frequency stabilization as an application of spectroscopy, and depending on the amount of time, maybe some medical applications as well.
that's it. Our, our semester is coming to an end. Yeah. Thank you.